Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Gerolitis, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code SHAP30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. We have a special show for you today. Today's guest has been a prolific player in the game of show business, and more specifically, in the game show business, as he has the distinction of bringing the legendary hit show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, from the United Kingdom to the United States. He's currently the executive producer of a massive slate of shows, including Jeopardy, Good Morning Football, and The Talking Dead, to name a few. He is one half of the hugely popular soccer platform, Men in Blazers, and he grew up in tennis. Known to many as Davo, Michael Davies is today's guest. So do I have this right that you, at 4 a.m., were broadcasting from the L.A. Coliseum for NBC's Fan Fest regarding the Premier League. Yeah, you have that you have that almost right. I'll give it to you. That's that's good enough. That's in. I'll call it in there. But Great. hang on a second. so what was it? Well, I left at about four oh five, four ten. I got there at four thirty. I didn't broadcast in the end until like eight fifty five. But I was at the fan fest at the LA Coliseum for NBC Sports this morning on air. It was amazing. Thousands, tens of thousands, I think, of Premier League fans got up really? at four in the morning. They're actually there at 1.30 in the morning, lining up outside the Coliseum to get into the Fan Fest. You know, 20 years ago, you couldn't watch English football in Los Angeles unless you went to one of the handful of pubs that were around, littered around these 17 suburbs without a city and go and watch it. Now it's like on Peacock and NBC Sports and the NBC main network. And, you know, they're showing Wolverhampton Wanderers versus Brentford. It's bizarre. Gentlemen, you here is a former employer of mine. He is the executive producer of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yep. He is the new executive producer of Jeopardy? Yep. He is one of the men in blazers, mm-hmm. and that's Michael Davies, uh, known to many in the football world as Davo. 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 Not Davo. No, not Davo. Davos <laughs> is a different thing entirely. Davos is Davo. a different thing entirely. I'm thinking of doing my own conference called Davos, but it would be mainly about football, <laughs> tennis, and tequila. And the reason we're here is because I had heard back when I did work for you for a short moment in time that you had a heavy tennis background. You had an interesting tennis background. and. 15 years later, I've learned that that is indeed the case. We've We're gonna, played. We've played. We have. Uh, you're, a great, you're actually, you speak about tennis and you play tennis in a way that I gravitate to. As you know, we do a five set format. Yeah. Uh, first set is the off the court report. I'm yeah. just gonna bang through a variety of different things. Okay. Um, this is the eighth year of Men in Blazers. It is, we've just been renewed for season eight somehow. It's bizarre. Um, So yeah, we we got our deal at NBC Sports to do the TV show right after we'd gone to the World Cup in 2014 for ESPN. We started the podcast 
in 2010. For our listeners, the men in blazers is Michael and a gentleman named Roger Bennett. Yeah. And you speak of all things football. Soccer. Yeah. It's, you know, we talk really about, as, as Roger always says, we speak about, you know, the game we love in the country we love in America. And we translate on the whole, English and European soccer, although increasingly we talk a lot about the US men's national team and the US women's national team, but we talk a lot about, we translate English and European soccer to this sort of burgeoning American audience for the sport. Smash hit? It's a, it's a decent hit. It's become a good, it's, I would say, of all the, I've been involved in some smash hits in my life. Um, you, know, you mentioned two of them, Millionaire and Jeopardy, and a bunch of other shows, Andy Cohen show, Good Morning Football on the NFL Network, um, you know, Talking Dead, Talking Bad, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. But Men in Blazers is the most surprising hit of all of them. It's the last thing. When we started doing our podcast, Craig, in 2010, we had literally seven people listening, and we knew them all by name. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn the genesis of all this in my third set. But... So, eighth season, yeah, and that begins this weekend, tomorrow. Well, the TV show we did the hit, but no, we're going to go back on air on Sunday, November seventh, following okay, um, following Liverpool West Ham, I think, and uh, yeah, we'll make you know a couple of dozen programs for NBC this year. But really, it's not just the TV show. There's a podcast, there's a newsletter, there's a social media, there's DraftKings stuff. We 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 do a lot of work in a, across a bunch of different platforms. It's an umbrella of Football fun. Football, Soccer. a little bit of tennis, but and a little bit of golf and some other culture. You know, Roger's doing this huge podcast right now about Band of Brothers. He wrote the number one selling uh, book in the country, nonfiction book in the country about how he grew up American in Liverpool. Um, it's a, yeah, but it's mainly centered around football and uh, our love of that game. Would it be fair to say the biggest aggravation you have in your professional life is Jeopardy? Biggest aggravation? No, not an aggravation at all. It's an honor. This is, I got to tell you, it's a, it's remarkable. But this, uh, the reason I ask it that way was because there's controversy here with the new host. Is that right? Well, there was, and now I've come in since then as what we call the awkward months around the show. But, you know, really, since I've come in, you know, we're just trying to, you know, get everything back on track. And I'm there just on an interim basis um, for now and, you know, just focusing on on my job and it's it's brilliant jeopardy is brilliant it is the greatest writing uh, the most underestimated writing on television happens on jeopardy in that jeopardy writers room the contestants are brilliant we have these amazing champions the audience are just wrapped into every single detail like if i move a graphic an inch um on the set like audiences notice it's a beautiful game merv created the most brilliant format uh back in the 1960s and it's just an honor to be doing that show. Merv Griffin created Jeopardy. Yeah, Merv Griffin. But also a very enthusiastic tennis player. Now, what, what happens regarding the host? Can you, is there any interesting information you can share? Not really. Right now, Ken Jennings, who's the GOAT, the greatest of all time. and The greatest uh, player. The greatest player of all time. And Mayan Bialik are, uh, are splitting hosting duties. And you know, we're just focusing on making the show on a, on, on a weekly basis. But weekly, daily basis, and we do five shows a day. We we just power those puppies out. Power them. Yeah. Uh, millionaire. Yeah. Not on the air right now. We came back in prime time. We're waiting to hear right now about whether we're coming back for season three. You know, Jimmy Kimmel, 
Um, I ignore the syndicated years after Meredith Vieira, after I left the show. But really, Regis, Meredith, now Jimmy Kimmel, the great sort of line of hosts on that program. And um, I'm going to actually tip the hat to Cedric, the entertainer, who did a very good job in his syndicated run. I didn't produce that run, but he did a good job. And um, we're waiting to hear on Millionaire. I love doing that show. I love everything about it, too. What can you tell us about Good Morning Football? Good Morning Football, it's, uh, I think it's one of the best shows we've ever produced at Embassy Row. Four amazing hosts. Until recently, Nate Burleson, who's now gone on to better things at CBS Morning Show. Five years on the, uh, on the air. We've been nominated for and won a bunch of awards. Kay Adams, Peter Schrager, Carl Brandt. We talk about the NFL, which everybody is talking about, but we talk about it. You'll love this. And this is our No Academy Has This Moment on Good Morning Football. No other morning show has this. Everybody's talking about the NFL, but every single day we are asymmetric. We talk about the things that nobody else is talking about. And if we're talking about the things they are talking about, we talk about them in a completely different way. That is the golden rule of making a talk show. You'd better be asymmetric. You better, by the way, it's the rule of also being a professional tennis player or being an elite athlete or really doing anything. You better be asymmetric. You better, if you're gonna do the same thing as everybody else, you better do it in a brilliant and different way or just try something completely different. You better be asymmetric. Medvedev, he's asymmetric. Do you know that your man, Peter Schrager, do you know his tennis significance? His in-laws, right? He's married to the woman whose parents owned the greatest tennis store in Baltimore. Is this right? In Baltimore, Maryland? Peter Schrager, who is, you know, the penultimate American football insider. Well, he really is, and genuinely is the insider. He knows every, you know, funny story. I, I needed tickets for the Rams tomorrow for a friend, and go to Peter. Peter has me on, you know, on a text chain with the president of the Rams in a second, and like perfect seats, pitch access, all those kind of things. He's a real GM, president, owner, agent, broadcasting legend, insider. Um, and he, he, his career is going there. You Pete, know why? He's asymmetric. Pete, Pete Schrager does a great job. Pete Schrager's wife is the scion of where we, when, when we were kids, in the back of Tennis Week magazine, was there a yeah. giant piece of, there was a giant advertisement from Hollowbird Sports. Oh, that's And that's Hollybird. where we bought all of our stuff. Yeah, you can buy shoes, rackets, machine, ball machines, stringing machines, T-shirts. Everything from all over the world you can get from Halliburton Sports. So wow. that's an interesting tennis I've got to connection. I thought him out for the discount. I think he offered it to me. <laughs> Definitely need a discount. Let's move into the second set. Okay. This is the on the court report. How important to British tennis is the Emma Raducanu win from your purview? Uh, I think it's massive for British tennis. I mean, you know, just at this amazing moment when Henman was was moving away. Andy Murray emerged, and as Andy Murray, oh, by the way, he's although he was back in Palm Springs and playing some great tennis, but now Emma Raducanu, out of seemingly nowhere, although suddenly a lot of people with hindsight saying, yeah, I knew all along that she was gonna be great. Emma Raducanu personally means a lot because uh, Emma is from Southeast London. I'm from Southeast London. I'm from the London Borough of Greenwich. Um, moved out to Bromley, which is about three miles out uh, when I was about 15 years old because that's where I was playing all of my tennis. And Emma Raducanu is from Bromley and, you know, grew up playing at the same tennis clubs that I played at, you know, part of the Kent Tennis Association who, where I played and where I represented, that was my county, it was her county, Virginia Wade's county. 
and um, Emma Raducanu, the first you know, British woman to win a major since Virginia Wade, and they are from the same county, which is amazing. Um, and look, I think she's great for British tennis. I think she's great for a modern Britain, the idea of a modern Britain, a multicultural Britain, a Britain, you know, and I love the fact that, you know, even this is beyond her being a British tennis player. I love the fact that she's intelligent. She didn't just go off to some academy in Florida. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but she is a, I believe in general education. I have to say this as, a, as the Jeopardy executive producer. I love a generalist. She is highly educated, stayed in school, studied, got her A-levels, got phenomenal results in her A-levels, which are the exams you take at 18, could have gotten to literally any British university, including the very, very famous ones. And, you know, her preparation for tennis was very, very different. She's Hang on a, a second. She could have gotten into Oxford. Yeah. With those grades, could have got into Oxford. Could have a sailed in. Emma Raducanu. Yeah. She's that bright. I did not know that. Yeah, she's a brilliant. Went to a very good school all-girls school that's really, you know, uh, well-regarded in Southeast London. That's a grammar school. You, it, it's, a, it's a state school, but it's like a, what do they call them in New York? It's like Stuyvesant. It's that kind of a school. It's sure. where the really bright kids you go. You got to test in. And yes. You, and you got to be good. She's super bright. Um, she, and, you know, from, from, from all accounts, you know, what happened to her this summer is that she is so bright. They were teaching her new things as she was playing these, kind of lower level WTA tournaments this summer in the US. She came over to San Jose, right? And then played in Pennsylvania, then played in Chicago. But they would work on a practice court with her on a Wednesday of like, hey, can you just try and like, let's try and hit your return on the rise a little bit closer to the baseline. And she would get it. And then the next day in the match, she would be three feet further forward returning on the rise on the baseline. Mm -hmm. And probably during the US Open, that's probably the best we've ever seen a woman return serve in, you know, in memory. I watched her in her in the semi and she dismantled Sakari. Yeah. And I, I I noticed just how much margin she cleared the net by. She she hits the ball heavy, she hits the ball hard, and she was cool as a cucumber. And, and the Hawkeye stats showed that she was just hitting the ball early, on the rise, mm. closer to the baseline than any other, you know, woman in the draw. And when you cut down the angles in tennis, when you take the ball early, it's transformative. Court position is one of those things that doesn't get talked about. I see the little rice smile on your face, Craig. But court position is something that doesn't get talked about very much. We talk about dictating a point. We use it in code. But court position and getting further forward towards the baseline in the modern game is everything. Do you have any interesting inside information? Do you, do you run in any circles that can tell me something about Emma that maybe only a, 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 a British gent could uh, know? Or, or, well, look, or, what I would tell you, what I would tell you about Southeast London, you know, and, and I think Americans will relate to this. There, there are there are areas of America that create a lot of great athletes. You know, there's been that area in Jersey that has, that has created so many great American soccer players. There are obviously areas of Florida and Alabama that, that create a huge number of football players. Pockets. You know, there are pockets in if for tennis players that we all know where they are. And like that South Florida area, there's definitely been sort of a California, a sort of SoCal-like area for, for creating tennis players. Sort of this sort of Midwestern, what's it, Michigan, Illinois has created a sure. bunch of great tennis players out of there. Um, Southeast London has become a pocket for creating athletes mm. over the last 15 years. You look at Premier League uh, teams, 
and it's it's partly because that it's an incredibly multicultural community. It's the housing estates and then playing fields and a bit more space all crammed around each other. And you look at a lot of these young players who are make who are seeing England's football team just get better and better and better. The vast majority of them are from Southeast London. It's becoming Southeast London. Where she's out of is this is this uh, multicultural melting pot that is creating phenomenal athletes. And there's enough space, it's in the suburbs. There's always a sense of, oh, we're not quite as good as the people who live in the city or people who live north of the river or people who live in southwest London where Wimbledon is and the sort of the leafy suburbs. Southeast London is harder. It's a harder place. Emma Raducanu, like everybody, she's now the, the face of you know Dior and the face of uh, Tiffany, I think. Um, but. Mark my words, this is a girl who is tough as nails. She is a South East London girl. A girl, as we say, where I'm from, she's from my manor, um, and she's tough as nails. And you mustn't underestimate that about her. Do you know Andy Murray? Uh, I have met Andy Murray once. I don't know him. I've met him. I think he is, um, yeah, I made, by the way, I think there are some things in common with Andy Murray and Glasgow and Scottish tennis and that sense of other and wanting to take on the establishment a little while coming from a different way. He, he found a different way, went to Spain, trained out there, came out of the LTA. Emma got more involved in the LTA, but there is an otherness coming from Southeast London, her background, the Chinese mother, the Romanian father. Um, there is an otherness, as there was about Andy, where he came out of in Dunblane, Scotland, that is, um, that is significant about both of them. Michael Davies likes to identify the recipe. Yes, I try. What were your impressions of the Novak Djokovic campaign to complete the Grand Slam and Daniil Medvedev's win there at the US Open? You know, I think well, one thing we don't uh, say enough in sport is uh, well played both players, you know, well played both men and uh, bravo uh, to both of you. You know, we tend to be very binary in sports coverage and there's, you know, one person was amazing and superb as the best and the person that they beat is like, oh, they played awful and they tanked it or they did, they did terribly. Happens less in tennis, but it's still there in tennis is we always look for the loser story, what made them lose and the winner, what made them win. And often what makes, you know, anybody who's played a tennis match knows that winning is the hardest thing. Winning points, and especially the higher level you go, beating a really good tennis player who's not going to miss, and beating them and, and forcing the action and winning a point is the hardest thing you can do. Medvedev, you know, he makes you suffer. You know, and after, especially after the Australian Open, you know, you know, uh, you know, match he lost against Novak, where he felt like. You know, and I think he might have said something like after this match that he didn't feel he could ever get to that level to go and beat him, or it's just a different level that he has to go and be at. I then think winning the ATP Cup was a huge thing for him, went undefeated in London and, and won that, but then sort of drifted a little bit after that through this year when suddenly people are thinking, oh, could he be the next guy to go and break in? I think he was the first player to get to number two in the world, you know, um, um, since the big four had really emerged. Um, but in this, in this final, as Novak, obviously, it was so important to him for what he was trying to achieve, you know, Medvedev made him suffer. That's what he tried to do. He just made him suffer. And it was fearfully close, but he just made him suffer. He makes you work. He hits unconventional shots. You're never quite sure where you are. And when he is on his game, he, is, he looks like a player who could be a multiple Grand Slam winner, even with 
you know, Novak's still hanging around. I wouldn't ever count out Rafa or Roger um, from coming back. Even Andy looks like he's coming back a little. Um, and this phenomenal competition on the men's side of the game. So many players who seem ready to step up and do something in the men's game. It's just exciting. But Roger, Roger's got to take one more lap around the sun and that'll be it for him, right? He's 40. Who knows? I mean, honestly, Craig, do you know what? I don't ever, nothing surprises me in sport anymore. I mean, look at what Tom Brady's doing. Look at, you know, look at what happens. You just never, ever really know. Roger at Wimbledon, you know, would you stake your life on, a, on Roger not winning another Wimbledon? I wouldn't stake my life on it. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. <laughs> you, you would bet against it, but you wouldn't stake your life on it. You and Roger yeah. interviewed... The other Roger. J the other Roger. Yeah, the, less, the slightly the less. Other, the other He's won Roger. a few less Grand Slams. <laughs> right, right. The other Roger yeah. interviewed Daniel in around the Miami tournament yeah. in conjunction with Lacoste, in yeah. conjunction with Racket Magazine. Oh, Racket, yeah. And uh, did you learn anything interesting when you spoke with him? Yeah, look, I mean, I think the biggest thing about Daniil that I learned is that he... Um, is the influence for him of, of growing up playing against a wall. Um, he really learned to play against a wall. You know, he wasn't around a much organized tennis when he was a kid and, and um, space on court as a, as a kid in Moscow was really hard. He had, a, had a, a, a much older female coach who would just get him up against a wall again and again and again. And actually he sort of credited that one of the reasons that he hits the backhand he does the way he does flat is because if you ever hit against the wall, very tough yeah. to hit a topspin backhand and then hit it again. You kind of have to slice your backhand against the wall or hit it flat against right. the wall. Very tough to come over it. I'm a, as somebody who grew up playing against the wall in, you know, in a housing estate in Southeast London, it's just very hard to hit topspin. And so he credits the wall as being, which is, by the way, the most underestimated, I've seen you playing against the wall, Craig. The wall <laughs> is the most underestimated training aid that there is well, in the tennis. wall doesn't miss. No, never misses. <laughs> never misses. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Mm. I'm going to, as I said earlier, I'm going to try to do a little bit of a dance between your life in tennis and then, you know, sort of maybe impart some uh, life lessons, professional lessons on our listeners. Um, where does your tennis begin? Tennis begun for me in Greenwich Park which is a, you know, London Park. You know, Greenwich is an area of London. It's about six, seven miles out of the city of London. It's kind of like growing up in Queens or Brooklyn or Staten Island. It's, it, it's down the river. The subway doesn't go there. Um, it has a beautiful park. And I learned to play on those tarmac courts in that park. My mother... What a tarmac court. Yeah, it's, it's probably tarmac. It's not like an American hard court. It's the same stuff that they make roads out of. They turned and made courts out of so it's quite porous um oh like yucky hardcore yeah a little bit of soft top on the hard court but not there deliberately it's just because it's breaking up um and uh learned to play on that my mother taught me my mother was a you know a lovely tennis player um and taught my brother and i my brother's six years older than i am we both grew up playing your mother was a lovely tennis player. lovely tennis player beautiful game still can picture other than the backhand where the thumb was on the back of the racket because my mother was born in 1927 and the way that you know the ladies particularly would play the game is that the old school backhand was it was a sort of a punch sure. with the with, with the thumb in the back of the racket 
But my mother's forehand was beautiful. Her serve was nice. She, a little bit of a net game. Like, and, but she taught my brother and I um, to play. Then, you know, we started getting involved, you know, with the Kent Tennis Association and, and, and playing for our county and played at a good tennis club, Sundridge Park in, in, um, in, uh, in Bromley. So you were playing four or five days a week. No, probably not that much. I mean, I, we played a little bit over winter. We were in sort of winter county training, and but probably not playing that much because I was also playing cricket and rugby and football. And, you know, we went to, you know, similar to what, you know, I saying about Emma, we got into selective schools and we were, we were trying to do anything we could to get out of Southeast London later in our lives. <laughs> and you know, academics were a big part of, of our lives. My brother, you know, more than me, but it was, it was a big thing. But tennis was a really important thing for both of us. And I was really following him onto a tennis court, and f just like I followed him into the entertainment business and followed him to America. So tennis was a very, very big part of our learning curve, life lesson learning curve, career lesson learning curve. Um, and ultimately, it was what brought us both to America, really. High school players? Yeah, no, a bit better than that. We were, I did play high school tennis, but we, um, you know, was county level player, uh, played some national tournaments, um, uh, lost to some really good players, was very fortunate that I grew up with a, a very good, you know, when I was in 12s, I grew up, my local rival was this guy, Richard Richello, who was a superb, um, a superb junior. And the number one and two juniors when I was in 12s and 14s, actually all the way through, was Richard and Jason Goodall from the Tennis uh, Channel. Jason, Jason Goodall played pro tennis. Jason was an amazing player. I lost to Jason a couple of times. Um, and, uh, you know, we both, we, we saw each other at US Open recently. We were laughing about, about those days and about, you know, playing with Richard and, and that stuff. But I was very fortunate. So I glided behind a really good tennis player and he was left-handed and I would literally hit with him all the time and I would learn a lot and I could mirror sort of what he was doing. I was never as good as him. But because I played doubles with him, it sort of lifted me up and it means I got to play some tournaments that I wouldn't otherwise have got to have played. But, you know, it was a pretty good 12, not quite as good in 14s, not quite as good in 16s, not quite as good in 18s, but still good enough that you know, when I got a scholarship to come and play a PG year in an American boarding school mm. where the standard was insanely high, I got to really um, take tennis more seriously. And that probably was the first time in my life that I was actually playing tennis five days a week, seven days a week, when I was playing American PG boarding school tennis mm. and then thought of going to college, but I already got into college back in Britain. So I ended up playing university tennis at the University of Edinburgh. So good British university tennis. It's not the standard of American college tennis, but it's good. And, you know, played, you know, um, first team for that in four years. And, you know, Scottish university, British university tennis championships, all that stuff that was superb. And then all the way in my breaks, all the way through college, I would go to Florida and I would go and teach tennis. And I learned to teach tennis um, with a tremendous man named Carlos Goffey. And Carlos Goffey, I think his son, Josh Goffey, is now a, a top coach at maybe Clemson or, or UNC. Sorry, can't remember where he, you are, Joshy. But Carlos had worked with McEnroe when he was at Port Washington. Yeah, yeah, no, he's a name. And Goffey had written his book, Tournament Tough, with my brother. It was mm. the first thing my brother ever really wrote. Now he's a huge movie writer, but he'd written his book, Tournament Tough, with Carlos Goffey and John McEnroe, all about the traffic light, syst traffic light system of recognizing red light points and yellow light points and green light points. And um, uh, I learned to coach through Carlos. And I actually think 
I've had a lot of success doing TV, but the job I've probably enjoyed most in my life and the job I'd say I've probably been best at in my life is teaching tennis. Yeah, you've said that. You don't agree. No, 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 no. I'm saying you've said that. I love it. You love it. Yeah, today I was at the Fan Fest and Paul Buckle was there. Paul Buckle is a former English professional football player. He's the husband of Rebecca Lowe from NBC Sports. Paul Buckle is an incredibly enthusiastic tennis player. And we're, we're there in the green room and I'm showing him one. He's having some issues with his serve and overhead. And I'm like, pull up on the clothesline. It's like, imagine that clothesline. Like, uh, there is nothing I enjoy more than like teaching tennis. It's the best. The Michael sole reason to have children. It's the sole reason to have children as far as I'm concerned. But you, you've said to me that you know, you have sort of this deeply personal relationship with the sport and that you weren't ever totally sure how to... Yeah, what to do with it. Sort you know, of do it, with it, was, it. it was always a part of my life. It was always a reason I got into it. When I first came to LA, I was teaching in, in, you know, on the side of, of, um, of you know, trying to get jobs in TV when I first came out here. Uh, my brother and I you know, would go off and play doubles with people and it certainly got us a little bit of a... You know, for both of us, it wasn't the reason we got into Hollywood, but it was a novelty about us that there were these two British guys who could play tennis quite nicely. And I do think my mother, I remember when my brother wanted to stop playing tennis once when he was a junior, my mother said, you know, never stop playing tennis because if you can play tennis anywhere you go in the world, people are going to want to play with you. And that's been true of whether I've been in Florida or New York or the Hamptons or Los Angeles, wherever I go. And I, I, I love hitting tennis balls. I love talking about tennis. I love watching tennis. I love teaching it. I'm much more, I mean, Men in Blazers is great. And believe me, I love it. And I love football. I love football so much. But tennis for me is a different level of enjoyment. And certainly over the last couple of years between reconnecting with you, the, you know, Caitlin and, and Dave and Renee and everybody else in, involved in Racket Magazine, which I'm passionate about that publication. Um, I've started competing again. I've started playing tournaments. I turned 55. I'm playing in the 55 and overs. Um, you know, I've got my rating. I'm like everything. I'm like really into it. I also have to have shoulder surgery, which is the other byproduct of playing all that tennis. But it, I love it. It's interesting how like your relationship with tennis kind of ebbs and flows. But right now, it's bigger than it's. I would say I'm more <laughs> enthusiastic about tennis now than I've ever been, and I've had crazy periods of tennis in my life. Yeah. You know, you've been and played at the club I play out 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 in Bridgehampton, New York, where we have these just eight, well, really four perfect grass courts that we rotate between eight surfaces. And grass court tennis is something I'm passionate about. No, um, let me just stop you. It. It's not an obsession, but your attraction to the grass is, is what? Um, it's, you know, it's the surface I probably played more on in my life. It's the only surface I ever won tournaments on. Um, I don't think, you. actually, I might have won one tournament on shale, which is a bizarre English surface that is like, <laughs> That is like a loose top, it, very pale imitation of red clay. Shale. Uh, shale. Um, it's like it's, it, 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 it requires fracking to play on that surface. Um, but I, um, I, yeah, grass is, the, is my best surface. And it's weird because I'm a baseliner, but I have a continental grip. I slice the ball a lot. I slice my forehand a lot. I'm very comfortable. I move better on grass than I move on any other surface. If, for some reason, I serve way better on grass, even though... My best serve is probably an out-wide kick serve that I can't even hit on a grass court because the ball sits up. So I have to <laughs> slice the serves, but I serve better on grass. Everything about my game is better on grass. Is it true that you 
brought Who Wants to Be a Millionaire from the UK to America. Yes, that is true. And what, how did that happen? And, um, and would that be fair to say that was your, that was your big break? That was my massive break. I mean, I'd sort of, I was working at Disney, ABC. I was working at Disney when Disney acquired ABC. When Disney acquired ABC, I went over and worked at ABC. You know, I was a senior vice president at ABC running late night and alternative series and specials. I had a pretty good job, but um, it was, I was an executive, you know, and, you know, I became a producer. Uh, I'd done, you know, Bill Nye the Science Guy and created Win Ben Stein's Money or co-created Win Ben Stein's Money. I'd done a few good shows, but Millionaire was the one that really took me over the edge. And I heard about it when it was in development in the UK. It was actually called Cash Mountain for a while. And then this team in Britain, Paul Smith, an executive at ITV, Claudia Rosencrantz, and a bunch of other very good producers, you know, developed this piece of magic, this television magic. And I saw it, and it was perfect. And I really never did anything to it other than board it across and didn't fuck it up. That's really it. Who attached Regis? I did. And how did that happen? Uh, I'd been working with Regis on actually, weirdly, the $64,000 question, bringing back that quiz show. And Regis's morning show was produced by the division, Buena Vista Television, that I used to work with at Disney. And I'd met Regis a couple of times, didn't know him at all. But Regis, at that point, was not really a national star. He was a daytime star who was kind of famous in New York. Regis and Kathy Lee. Yes, that was the show. And um, I decided that Regis was the guy for the show. You know, there's a lot of pressure on me to... Um, to look at a lot of other people, um, which I did, but Regis was always my choice, and he wanted it more than anybody. That's another great life lesson. He wanted it more than anyone, and he called me in my office. I'll never forget it. The old office I used to work on in Century City and um, on Avenue of the Stars, the ABC Entertainment Center, had a tennis club on the roof. Uh, it's not there anymore because it got knocked down to build CAA, the Death Star. Mm. And uh, he called me in my office and, and pitched me on why he was perfect for the job. And from the moment he made that call, he was the only guy. Home run from the day it started? Literally an, an explosive hit from the very first episode. Now, I remember at some point that show was on in the morning. It was on in the day. It was on in the night. It went from, and it was on every night. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest show there ever was? It, well, we made 363 primetime episodes in three years. And it started as a strip. It started when it first went on the air. It went 11 straight nights in August of 1999. Then I think we went 16 straight nights in November of 1999. And then it just went ballistic. And then it was on three days a week, then four days a week, back to three days a week. It was canceled with a rating today that would make it the number one show on television by a mile. You know, the audience was getting a little older. I mean, to some extent, we'd done every single... People who'd watched the show had seen every different combination of what could happen on the show. 363 episodes of a primetime show would last, what, like 22, 23 years? Like, we got our mileage out of that show. Do you know how many millionaires... How many, how many people won the million? Yeah, I've had 14. David Chang, when I just did Celebrity Millionaire, was my 14th millionaire. 14 in all those years. Yeah, David was the first celebrity. I think it was 11 on primetime, two in syndication, and, uh, and David Chang on the, on the shows I produce. It's a good would feeling. It, Having someone win a million dollars on your show is a great feeling. Would it be fair to say that the difficulty of, the, of getting all the way there was the juice? In other words, like, it's so hard to have only 14 in all those years. 
Yeah, it's difficult. And you know, it's the individual questions on Millionaire Don't Kill You, but it's the fact that you can't ever sit one out. You know, you just have, you have to sit through every question. And that's a, uh, that's a great thing. You've got lifelines. You don't have to answer until you've seen the question, the four possible answers. You know, you have all the time in the world to answer, but it's a, you can't ever sit anything out. And everyone has gaps in their knowledge. You know, there are always things that trip people up. Will you tell the story of how Men and Blazers came to be? Roger and I, I'd been writing for ESPN 2002, 2006, you know, this sort of for World Cup years, Japan and Germany. I took a sort of a, a five week break from my job and I went for ESPN and I wrote a blog covering the World Cup. I wrote 2,000 words a day for 31 straight days. I loved doing it. It was just like, it was a work vacation that I just loved. Took me out of everything to do with TV and just had me do something completely different. And, and, and those World Cups, you would watch the games. I would you go would... to the stadium, I would travel all around the countries. <laughs> it's somewhere between a travelogue yeah. and a diary. It was, you know, in 2002, it's before, I think both of them, I'm not sure that a blog was called a blog yet. It was like a Davies World Cup diary. And I wrote these things, they're still all on the internet somewhere. And I wrote this amazing one in Japan, this, this you know, I think pretty good one in Germany. And then 2010 was coming around and I didn't know that I could do it again, that I could take the time off. By that point, I was running Embassy Row. I just sold it to Sony. I didn't, uh, my production company, I sold it to Sony Pictures Entertainment. I didn't think I could take the time off again. And I'd met, on the day of the 2006 final, I'd met this guy, Roger Bennett, who was a, um, another English sports writer who was writing for ESPN. And we sort of... Wait, no, 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 no. You, how'd you... The way we you met at a wedding. Was, the way you we meet met, him is incredible. We met at a wedding uh, on a boat circumnavigating Manhattan during the World Cup final. I'd literally just flown home from Germany. I'd been at the semis. I was so miserable to be at this wedding, as was Roger, because we were missing uh, extra time of the best World Cup final in memory. And we met each other. We commiserated at the bar. And we ended up then, you know becoming friends, didn't see each other a lot, um, but sort of talked here and there about working with each other. Then 2010 came along and we combined and worked for ESPN on the South Africa World Cup from the US, then started a podcast and it all really went from there. And we called it Men in Blazers because I, um, I always found it funny when I came to America that you know there are all these people on television talking about sports and I had no idea who they were. But the one thing they all had in common is that they were wearing blazers with the logo of either the network they were working for or the league they were covering. And it seemed the second that they put on that blazer, they had the authority to talk about what they were talking about. You've got to think about the Craig Shapiro tennis podcast, No Academy <laughs> Has This Blazer, Craig. So um, the, uh, this blazer seemed to imbue people with power. So I said, let's just make blazers. It was sort of a joke. Let's just get blazers. Let's make a logo and call ourselves the men in blazers. And we're there, we suddenly have the authority to talk about football, it was a joke. But suddenly then, everybody started <laughs> sort of letting us talk about it and take us seriously. And the podcast, we got in early, obviously 2010 was pretty early to start a podcast. Bill Simmons picked us up and put us on Grantland. We owe a massive debt to him and we sort of built at Grantland. But your chemistry is outstanding. Like you guys have, you guys found a great lane. Did that, did that happen right out of the box? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first podcast isn't good, but we did, you know, a lot of it is reps and some of it is natural chemistry, but, um, and also a huge amount of work. And I'd say most of that work is done by Roger. You know, this is his 
full-time, yeah. I mean, he does the book, he does the Succession podcast, he does some other things, but this is really his, his obsession. And he, you know, to his credit, he put so much work into it. Um, and, but he is, he is a genius. And so I you don't just brilliant. show up, you don't no, just I, show, you guys do work. He does a huge amount of work. I have at times shown up and I've really tried certainly over the last year or two to put more into it. I spend more time preparing, well, more time watching games, more time reading, more time studying so that I'm better. But there is a natural, I think on a, on a two-handed podcast, it's, it, two people can't be like doing lines. You know, there's one person has got a, I find Roger hilarious. And so, and I also, you know, we needle each other a bit and we, and it is a bit of bants, as they say in England. So it, that, that all works. But the chemistry works. I think one of the, the secrets is that, you know, we have, I think, great respect for each other and we like each other a lot. But we don't spend an enormous amount of time with each other other than when we are making Men in Blazers content. And it, we save it all. And Regis used to do this with Kathy Lee. Like, he wouldn't talk about his stories until he went on the air. And, and we talk about the stuff on the air with each other. And I think that works really well. And you do the work. The, 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 I think the, a lot of people ask me, a lot, there's a lot of podcasts, there's a lot of things. The, the, the cream rises to the top. You well, look, to... I watch an enormous amount of football. And I, I also read and listen to a lot of people who are now, there are a lot of other football podcasts, there are a lot of other people out there in the world. And as I said earlier, you've got to be asymmetric. So I particularly feel pressure to have a different take on what's going on. And especially in a two-handed podcast, it's boring if we're both agreeing with each other the whole time, you know? And, and, but also, it can't be fake. You can't just disagree for the sake of disagreeing. So I really have to figure out what my opinion is. And we do come from a different enough background. He's from up north, I'm from down south. Like, he's a Liverpool fan. Um, I'm a Chelsea fan. He's Jewish. I'm a Gentile. Like it's a the, the whole. I thought he's Everton. Did I have that wrong? No, sorry. He's Liverpool. That's awful. That's so funny. His his brother is Liverpool. He's Everton. I'm Chelsea. Um, sorry, it's just a very good day today. Chelsea won seven 0 and Everton lost five two to Watford. So um, it's yeah, there's enough different in our backgrounds and our point of view that you know makes it work. You've done things in in this entertainment business that people they speak of it being the hardest thing you can do is to sell a TV show and and to live in this business this way. Any interesting any advice for the people? Is there a moral to the story? I mean, look, there are, there are, there are a couple of things that to me are absolutely essential, but you don't get credit for because everybody who's successful is doing them. But they are just like this is the this is the price of admission. You better work hard and you better be nice to people. And yes, there are some successful people who don't work hard and there are some successful people who are not nice to people. Um, but the vast majority of people who even get a chance to be good, they work really hard and they're nice to people. So those are the two things which I think you've got to, you've just, they are givens that you've got to do. And I think the third thing is all about the asymmetry. You have to find a, a, a white space. You've got to find a thing that you do that nobody else does in quite the way you do. Embassy Row, the company that I run, you know, we are, there's been a sort of an explosion in reality television. There are all these non-fiction companies who make reality shows. We really specialize in making studio-based content. It's primarily talk. Um, we do entertainment and sports, and we do game shows. And really, that is about the limit of what we do. But we will do them for OTT networks, for broadcast networks, for cable, for streamers, for AVOD, for digital, for mobile, for all of those kind of things. But it's really just talking games. And there isn't another company in our space who specializes in doing the same stuff. 
And we push the envelope in those genres because we focus on them so much. We're good at them. In fact, the show we met on was a show probably Studio 7, which is a show that I was trying to push the envelope harder than probably any other game I've ever done. Which was a reality, put, put 10 kids in a house, yeah. and then put them on a quiz show. Yeah. That's right. And have them study everything, know what they've got to study, and have them study and follow them do that. It's like the real world meets Jeopardy. I like that show. Yeah, it was fun. It was amazing. The great Pat Keenan. Let's move into the fourth set. This is the 10 wall scramble. Okay. I say it and you say what comes in your mind. Okay. The importance of the FIFA video game to the sports popularity now. It's the invisible hand that grew the game in the United States of America. Without it, soccer would not be as big as it is in the US. Explain that. Well, it's just so many kids learn the teams, learn the commentators, learn the cadence of the game, learn everything about it by watching FIFA. FIFA is so well done. It's a brilliantly produced game. By playing By playing FIFA. FIFA, they understood everything. There were people who became massive soccer fans who'd never been to a game. They'd actually never watched a game on TV. We, were, we, were, we met so many NFL players particularly who in their dressing rooms were playing way more FIFA than Madden. And that's how they learned soccer. And they, everything, they became Barcelona fans or Chelsea fans or Liverpool fans from playing FIFA. Would it be fair to say tennis could benefit tremendously from a big time video game? Oh my game? God, tennis could benefit massively. But you know, what is the best tennis video game that's ever made? Well, I don't know. Probably the Wii. But it's tough. There's never really been a, you know, tennis hasn't had its great game. Your position on gambling in tennis? <sighs> I am... Inevitable, it's all there, there's gonna be gambling. Gambling is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I personally think that we're gonna look back on this era and it's gonna be a little bit like when we go back and watch TV programs in the 50s and 60s where everybody's smoking and putting out their cigarettes on talk shows and game shows. And you know there were ads talking about the health benefits of smoking a certain brand of cigarettes and doctors recommending them. I think that the gambling stuff is dangerous and I think we're promoting some, you know, the people who get, um, you know, caught up and their lives get, you know, go out of control and get ruined by gambling. I'm, I'm, I do have some, I have some concerns and I have some questions about it. Uh, I think it is, however, inevitable. Your best moment in tennis? Um, do you know, it's not a single moment, but I can tell you what is my, the joy of my life is probably um, and this happened recently, it's something I'd always look forward to. My daughter, JJ, is 17 years old. She's become a really nice tennis player, plays high school tennis uh, for Nightingale Bamford in New York City, go Nighthawks. And um, it's a good high school player, plays number one doubles on the team. And she's got to the level now where I can go out and hit with her and it is just a really, really great rally. It's a really fun thing. and. She has the same passion for tennis that I have and so many of my family have. Your best moment on Men in Blazers? <clears throat> um, it was the World Cup, Brazil, 2014. Wall Street Journal, I think, wrote afterwards that the Men in Blazers had won the World Cup. It was, we were in this crappy little um, closet in, the, in this awful little broadcast center at the end of Copacabana Beach. We were literally imprisoned there for 31 straight days. And we just had so much fun in that room. And that's where we really shaped the whole gestalt of the TV show. Your best moment on Millionaire? 
Uh, John Carpenter winning the first million dollars, first million dollar winner, um, him calling his dad, and me realizing, oh my God, he's calling his dad to tell him that he's won a million dollars, and he just wants to let him know, and that was phenomenal. You were in the truck? I was in the control room. Control room. In the control room. It's funny, funny story about that. I often say that like great creative ideas can come from anywhere on a TV crew. You know how many people work to make a TV show happen. And um, I realized we're going into the million dollar question and I realized when the question comes up, I'm looking in his eyes and I'm thinking, you know what, I think he knows it. And I say to, my, uh, I say to the room, because this is gonna be the first time that anybody has won question 15, the million dollar, million pound, million euro level anywhere in the world. And I know that this clip will go everywhere around the world. And I've got no way of speaking to Regis because he doesn't wear an earpiece. He will occasionally read the messaging system on his computer that I send to him. So I have one chance when he's looking down to see whether the answer is right or wrong after the person locks in final answer. I have one chance when I know he's looking at his screen where I can send him a line that he can maybe say before he awards the million dollars. And I'm, I, of course, you rehearse everything. I hadn't rehearsed the million dollar moment. I had no <laughs> idea what I was gonna do. And I went out to the room, because I knew in Britain what I would have done. It was like when England won the World Cup, you know, in 1966, there was a famous line of commentary, they think it's all over. And then Jeff Hurst scored the fourth goal. It is now. And there were, there were these sort of like famous lines from sports. And I went to the control room and I was like, what is the, what is the most famous broadcasting line in the history of sports. And everybody's sort of turning around and they're trying to concentrate on what they're doing. They don't really give me an answer. And at that moment, Dennis McMahon, who is our runner on the show, he's literally sweeping in the corner of the control room. And he turns around and he says, oh, uh, the shot heard around the world. And I was like, the shot heard around the world. I go, that's the beginning of the First World War. He goes, no, it's baseball. It's, I forgot what, I don't know what it is. It's like Babe Ruth, I don't know what it was. And he goes, the shot heard around the world. And I was like, that's it. And I type in the final answer heard all around the world. It was perfect. I typed it in for like the first time ever when the guy locks in final answer. Regis actually reads the final answer heard all around the world. You can watch it on YouTube. It's like literally gives me goosebumps still watching it. Final answer heard all around the world. You just won a million dollars. And it was just this great, unbelievable moment. And for me, it was everything about TV. And I tell every PA who ever comes to work for me, that like Dennis came up with that line, that it was the, and it's like, you just always be ready. Even with the broom in your hand, you could be the guy that contributes and makes it work. That just gave me the chills. Um, are there any footballers, coaches that you've, uh, that you know are uh, tennis people? Can any of them hit the ball? Can any of them no, it's funny, I was with the NBC team today. Robbie Musto is a good tennis player um, who is, is part of the NBC crew. Um, you know, I think when I was at the World Cup, Ruud van Nistelrooy is a very keen tennis player, used to form a Manchester United striker, Dutch national team player. Great I think player, Ruud I, van Nistelrooy. Yeah, I think he's, uh, I think he's a dentist, decent tennis player. I think there'd be some other things. I'm forgetting, forgetting some of the other good. Uh, I think maybe Steve McManaman plays a little bit of tennis as well, but I think a few uh, footballers have been, have, been, uh, have been decent. But, you know, more footballers seem to go and by the way, former tennis players seem to uh, cross over. They, they, they seem to go and play golf. They do. Tennis is more difficult to, yeah. to play for sure. Uh, your current racket, your current strings? Uh, just ordered the, uh, uh, the, the, the 18 by 20 Dunlop uh, CX. Um, 
Dunlop player. I'm a Dunlop player, have been pretty much since the uh, Max Play Fort through the 200G and now the CX series. They still have those little, you know, forgot what they call it now with the graphite rackets, but they have the little holes that go through it, gives you a bit more feel for the ball. I love the Dunlop. Strings, I, uh, I cross string, cross string gut, vertical string, synthetic, but sometimes I. You I put natural it. gut in the crosses. Yeah, but, a... but actually this summer I, I switched, I went the other way. Uh, mm. Pablo Araya, former great pro, who told was you the, to flip it. Who's the who's the assistant director at Beverly Hills Tennis Club, told me to flip it, and I liked it. Um, so yeah, I gut and synthetic. So you, you put know. gut in the mains now, the long. Stuff. I've yeah, I've I I sort of have one racket that I keep it in the mains and one and one in the uh, one in the cross. So I, I I don't know. I can't tell a difference, but I do like the cross. I, I like the gut and synthetic combo. Your favorite player growing up. Uh, Stan Smith, I ball boyed at Beckenham and saw him play when I was uh, one of the pre-Wimbledon tournaments when I was young. Stan Smith was my favorite and probably a little bit um, uh, sort of shout out to Arthur Ashe uh, and Yvonne Gulagon. And now, is there, is there someone you gravitate to or do you maintain journalistic neutrality? Well, obviously, no. <laughs> oh, by the way, anybody who listens to Men in Blazers know I maintain none. Uh, certainly, Emma is, is on the, the women's side. I'm just a phenomenal fan of. I would say, probably, if in the intervening period, the, the player I most enjoyed watching play tennis because I could relate to it, not because I was anywhere near as good as her, but the kind of game she played was the way I tried to approach tennis always, and that was Steffi Graf. Like, setting up, always trying to get on that forehand weapon, like the slice backhand, underrated backhand because she's setting up her forehand. Like, I just loved watching Steffi Graf play tennis. You loved do, it. You play that way. Yeah, I love... You, you step to the ad court to, to yeah. rip the forehand. Yeah, I, but I try to set up. You can't do it by just running around your forehand. You've got to set up your backhand a little bit. But I love the way she plays tennis. Now, I love Medvedev. Love watching um, him play tennis. Um, Fanini, I find him just so entertaining. I, 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 love, I love his whole attitude. Um, I love that too. And Monfils, who doesn't love Monfils and Kyrgios, these two great athletes who play the game. Michael Davies loves the he loves the uh, he loves the big time athleticism and the action. Oh my God, yes, yeah, so much so. Well, look, I like I like people who are just doing it differently. It's all asymmetric, you know. These are all, you know, Fanini just ripping the ball on every single shot. Medvedev making the, everything so awkward for everyone. And Monfils, just that sheer athleticism. Kyrgios as well, like just two uh, phenomenal athletes playing this, playing this sport. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. Yeah. I normally ask the guest if they could make a change in tennis, what would it be? But I, I think I want to try it this way. What does tennis need to do to, to fix its, its dilemma of just kind of falling behind popularity-wise. I have a fairly radical view of this. And look, there, there should always be five-set tennis and three-set long tennis in the majors, in the, in the classic tournaments. And there should always be that. But tennis really desperately needs to do two things. One, it has a massive inventory problem. There are way too many tournaments and um, the matches are of incredibly unpredictable length. And in an era where 
cable television and linear broadcast, linear cable are going away, and the value of advertising, the gaps between commercials, is, is getting less. Tennis needs to have a shorter version of itself and a more predictable length version of itself in order to succeed. But not just with sort of B-rate, C-rate players playing. It needs to have its elite players playing in different formats. And it needs to experiment a little bit in format-wise. I think it's really a positive what they've done with you know, the Labour Cup. I think that's a really positive development to try and find something a little bit different. Um, but I think what's happened in cricket, and a lot of your uh, listeners won't know what I'm talking about, but cricket, which is the most traditional of all sports, the most traditional, where test matches between countries last five days. First-class matches tend to last three days. Um, and most of these games end in draws. The most traditional sport where you could never break the traditions of the sport, more traditional than baseball even. They have, you know, really the Indians pioneered with a form of the game, with one-day versions of the game, limited overs, fixed number of, 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 of pitches of, of, of overs. Um, and now they came up with a version 2020, which has revolutionized the game. It's like a, a, a three-hour version of cricket. Now in, in, in uh, England, the... Um, the ECB have come up with a version of the, of the sport called the 100, which is just 100 pitches. And it's just wildly, wildly boosting the popularity of, 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 of cricket. And tennis needs a shot clock. It, need, it needs a clock between points that's actually enforced and actually is part of the action rather than just being this thing that goes off to the side. Tennis has to, in some form, has got to experiment with moving quicker, with having a fixed length with trying new formats. It's just really, really important that we find something. Um, you know, I know Tommy Haas, who's a, a, you know, a mutual friend of both of us. He's been working on some things, working on some ideas. Um, but I really think tennis has got to cut its number of tournaments and it's got to try some new formats because it will not survive playing these, this calendar of the WTA and the ATP playing all of these tournaments and all these different levels and all these different countries with these lengths, not knowing when it's going to start. I followed the sport and I don't know where the next tournament is. I follow particular players and I have to keep on refreshing my phone to see what time their match is going to start and to figure out which branch of the tennis channel or ESPN plus it's going to be on. I am in the media business and I can't find the tennis I want to watch. Imagine what the casual fan is doing. They are utterly, utterly, completely confused. And tennis keeps on shooting itself in the foot. We came out of the greatest US Open, one of the greatest US Opens in memory on both sides of the, of the, of, of the draw. By the way, and also not just in the singles, also in doubles, in wheelchair, and every part of that tournament was, was just magnificent. Where's all that momentum? It's crumbled, it's not there. It drives me crazy. Michael Davies, um, I thoroughly enjoyed this. As I said, you know, I really like talking tennis with you. I think I selfishly you was curious about the rest of your uh, endeavors. What is on the uh, slate for the back end of the year? Uh, lots more Jeopardy. We're filming a college Jeopardy tournament. We're doing a professor's tournament next week. Uh, I'm really loving every second of doing that show. I'm working on a, a bunch of other stuff. You know, working with our friends at Racket still to try and make more content. Um, you know, um, launching a uh, a new sports network that we're going to be out there talking about. You know, shortly. Um, yeah, lots of exciting things going on. 
um, career-wise. And hopefully getting my shoulder fixed, you know, continuing in, P, in PT to try and uh, fix the shoulder, maybe have to have my platelet spun. I think I'm getting to that point that I've got to do something about it. I'm considering at 55 also, this is the biggest thing, certainly for this podcast, I am considering eventually saying goodbye to my single-handed backhand, keeping the slice, but moving to a double-handed backhand that I shovel off my left foot. Open stance, double-handed backhand. I've been practicing it. I've been working on it. <laughs> and it's, uh, it all came from watching who I know somebody you're a fan of, Patrick Mura, I can't pronounce his name, Muratoglu, Muratoglu, who is the best instruction yeah, on social nice media. Job. You can, he does a, almost everything, he, yeah. in fact, I would say everything he says, yeah. I agree with. Yeah. He's not one of those coaches who would be like, yeah, I don't know, which is a lot of social media tennis <laughs> instruction. Yeah. But Muratoglu, who I love, he started and he was, he was talking to someone, he was saying, just hit it off the left foot. And I was going, oh my God, I've been working on hitting off the foot. I hit it better off the left foot. I struggle to hit a double-handed backhand off my right foot, and I used to in juniors, but now hitting it off the left foot, I can hit it off the left foot. I like it. Michael Davies. It's my new thing. Michael Davies loves tennis, man. No academy has this. <laughs> no academy has this. Why does no other academy have this, Craig? Do you ever ask yourself the question, <laughs> why do another not. academy <laughs> does not have this? Because really, another academy should have this. But it's like, that's your white space. You realized no academy has this, so I'm going to go and have it. But I wonder if there is some sort of evil genius watching this or listening to this who's thinking, you know what, why does no academy have this? I might start an academy that has this, and then you'll have to like just continue to rise and be asymmetric and do something very different. Well, you could be head of you could be head of Hamptons and head of head of Beverly Hills. Oh, could I be? Really? You have we no could, head of Hamptons and no head of Beverly Hills? I just I, I named you head of Hamptons. Okay, I'll be head but of Hamptons. It feels like Beverly Hills giving me two jobs is a lot. Seems like head a of, lot. Head of Hamptons, I'll take. Now, normally I would say that you are released. I typically release the guests, but since we're in your house. Yeah, you I are in my house. We all just got to say goodbye. Yeah, I'm going to release you. I'm going to see the Clippers <laughs> tonight, so I'm going to have to release you. Thank you very much. Oh, Craig, you're the best. Huge thank you to Michael Davies, and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code SHAP30, in all caps, at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. <laughs>